Okay, uh, welcome once again to the Hope Interrupted podcast. I am Byron McCauley uh, here with Jennifer Mooney, uh, my writing partner and co-author of Hope Interrupted. Jennifer, I am so excited about this particular episode. Oh this, my God. This is going to be a great episode. Unfortunately, it's... Um, it's one of those topics that has gotten has not improved in America as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And we do cover it in our book. One of the um, starting points of our book is we talk a lot about George Floyd, actually, in the early writings. Um, so one thing one thing I do want to say at the top, speaking of the book, I'm going to give a little promo. Our book is officially available now, but it publishes on the 4th of May. And to learn more about it, go to www.hopeinterrupted.com. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. And, and as we move forward here, I do want to point out that I'm hearing a little bit of feedback. So um, I think we'll probably be able to resolve that as we move forward with our conversation. Um, but I do want to go ahead and dive right into this conversation because it's very highly relevant right now. Uh, as Jennifer said, we started writing this book partly because uh, George Floyd, a, a Minneapolis man, uh, was killed under the knee of an, a police officer's uh, under the knee of a police officer there in Minneapolis. And then just this week, uh, last week, a, a young man, uh, it was revealed, was shot and killed by a a, a police officer. Uh, just outside of, of uh, the city of Minneapolis. And today we have two special guests with us. We have uh, two journalists who've, who've been involved um, in the reporting and editing of Pulitzer Prize winning um, reports at newspapers in Ohio. I want to introduce you to John Erickson, who has been a, an editor uh, in Ohio and is now enjoying the wonderful retirement life. But John is a uh, Pulitzer finalist a couple of times, a Pulitzer winner uh, one time, and he is joining us. Now, John is, is going to tell us a little bit about himself, but but I will tell you, he is from Minneapolis. He is a graduate of the University of Minnesota, and I was teasing him just early on, and, and, we'll, and we'll say a little bit more about that later. Also have Randy Tucker. Randy is currently a reporter in Ohio uh, at the Cincinnati Inquirer, uh, was was part of an award-winning uh, Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize-winning, award-winning staff in 2019. And Randy is also from Minneapolis. The interesting thing about both Randy and John is it is like Jennifer and me, uh, they're of different races, grew up in different um, circumstances, but they became fast friends and they're friends now as an adult. So I'll stop talking and I'm going to welcome Randy and John. Thank you for being here. Thanks Thank for having you. us. Glad Thanks to be here. It's good to see you. So guys, um, I, want to start, I want to start with the first question. You know, talk, talk to us a little bit about, first of all, who you are and how you became friends before we dive into the heavy stuff, because this is important as we talk about the discussion of race relations and human relations. So tell us about your journey together. Go ahead, John. 
And I think for our audience, well, if you guys could talk to in, in that about where you met, kind of where you met and how old you were and some of that. Yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah. Well, I, I'll get the party started. Wasn't we did not need. Go ahead. <laughs> we didn't meet in Minnesota. Uh, it was about it was about seven or eight years ago. We we both grew up in Minneapolis, but we didn't know each other there. Although I used to play basketball at uh, Martin Luther King Park, which was not far from where Randy lived. But uh, I'm a few years older than Randy, so and I don't think he could compete with me anyway. But anyway, yeah. we uh, old we times had left the court by the time I took over. He applied for a job at the Dayton Daily News. I was an editor there and he actually wasn't applying for a job to work for me. He was applying for a different job. But uh, once I learned that he grew up in Minneapolis, I kind of swooped in and uh, hired him pretty much right on the spot. Smart move. Minnesota, Minnesota nice. That's right. Was that, was I know. that a smart move, John, or did, did that work out okay? I'm surprised if it did, but it did it? Uh, it worked out. It worked out great. Uh, Randy's okay. a great reporter and uh, an even better friend. And so... You know, I mean, people uh, become friends when they have a lot of interests together, and uh, we like a lot of the same things. Uh, we like bourbon. Uh, we like uh, uh, sports. Uh, we're diehard Minnesota Vikings fans, and uh, uh, I'd say we're Gophers fans too. But but they're not very good in, in too many sports, so it's it's hard to be a Gopher fan. But but anyway, we bonded on a lot of things that we like, and uh, we're out. We like the outdoors, so we we deal with that. So, I mean, we basically we have a lot in common. And Randy, you do have a lot in common. So, um, tell me about that from your perspective. From my from my perspective, John is like the kids that I grew. You know, I grew up in Minneapolis, but I went to parochial schools. I was bused out into a suburb of Minneapolis called Richfield. And from grade school through like the ninth grade, you know, I was one of two, you know, black kids in my class. And all my friends were, you know, white kids like John. And uh, so, you know, relating to uh, John was, you know, it, it wasn't difficult at all. You know, I mean, he's he pretty much could have been one of my crew, you know, uh, back in the day when I was in grade school. Gotcha. And uh, like he said, you know, we have a lot of similar interests. Uh, you know, we both have uh, love for uh, the Twin Cities. And, uh, and it's just hard to see what's going on there now. I have a question, Randy, um, and I'm not asking you your age, but but this kind of ties to that. Were you part of... Um, I'm younger than he is, by the way. Byron or Rand or John? John. I'm young, I'm younger than John. <laughs> Lately, I've been the oldest person on the podcast most weeks, so I'll just get that. Yeah, I, I doubt that this week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you see all you see all the gray in the screens. You know? <laughs> for the for for the audience, we can see each, even though you can't see us. We can see you while we're doing this, but we usually do post a picture. Oh. Anyway. Um, so my question, I have a question for you before we get into this week. Um, when you said you were bussed out, was that something your parents chose to send you the parochial schools 
or was it part of school integration at that time? No, it was a choice. Uh, okay. My parents, uh, you know, had the means to to pay uh, the you know, small tuition compared to what it is now to send me to school there. And, you know, Minneapolis had a, a solid public school system, but uh, it had, you know, started to decline in the, let me see, when was I in grade school? I graduated from high school in 1979. So, you know, say 10 years earlier in the late 60s, early 70s, the public school system in Minneapolis had begun to begun to deteriorate a little bit. And uh, and they just wanted to give me a you know better opportunity, so they chose to uh, to send me there. Uh, my father was a an accountant, worked for the city, and uh, you know so he made pretty good money. He could afford to send me there because it costs what it costs to send a kid to grade school these days is just ridiculous. And believe me, I believe me, I know I raised I raised kids too as well, and it's stunning. <laughs> It is. It's, I can't believe it. Yep. I, I don't know how families do it. So as I'm listening to both of you guys, so you, you're, you're just ordinary Joes, really, who happen to come from different backgrounds, but found friendship through work. Um, Urena, you talked about education. Like that was the, that's the ticket to freedom, in my opinion, all the time, the education and free enterprise. Um, which just happens to be where both of you work. And you just kind of, you know, it's, it's, so it's, so it almost feels like, ah, this guy's just my buddy. Uh, we're talking about race a little bit. And um, did that ever come up with you guys? <laughs> well, we, t- <laughs> we talk, we talk about racial issues, but it's a, you know, as something that we need to really understand about one another. I mean, that's one thing that people I don't think realize about Minneapolis, I think is viewed as, I mean, it is, well, it has been more, uh, you know, predominantly white than it is now. Uh, when we were coming up, I think the black population in Minneapolis was like, you know, 4% of the population. But again, like I said, when I, you know, when I went to grade school, I went to school with most white kids. So, I mean, you know, it wasn't like, you know, I had any kind of cultural curiosity about John or his background. And John went to public schools and he played basketball with, uh, you know, black guys. And uh, he played, if he balled, if he hooped at Martin Luther King Park, which he says he did, but, you know, I don't know we'll see any evidence of that. <laughs> but he's, uh, if he did, uh, you know, he hooped with Are you, is Randy uh, going in and out for you guys? Yeah, yeah, he is. So, so, so if he can hear us. Can you hear us? Okay. Yeah, I can. I'll tell you a little story, Byron, that, that is, uh, kind of captures the difference uh, between a white person and a black person growing up in the same place. Uh, we were back in, in Minneapolis together a couple of years ago, uh, and we were going to go see my mother, who lives in a uh, kind of an assisted living facility. And Randy's mother used to live in the same place. So anyway, we got together, 
and we were going to bring a bottle of wine over to her house or her apartment. And so we stopped at the liquor store to get the bottle of wine. Uh, we pulled out of the liquor store. Randy was driving. Uh, and it was only about like less than a mile from the liquor store to my mom's uh, apartment. We were followed by an Edina police officer who was um, followed us out of the parking lot of the liquor store, followed us all the way to my mom's place. And then when we got there, he pulled up to the front like he was planning to go there the whole time. And uh, Randy went up to the to his window and asked him if he needed anything. And the guy didn't even respond. He just stared. And uh, so Randy gave me a hard time afterward. He said, uh, you just experienced driving while black, which uh, I will tell you doesn't happen to a white person driving. I mean, I've been pulled over, but I don't think it was for that reason. He didn't do anything wrong. Uh, he just, you know, there was an assumption that he was doing something wrong. And I think that's probably what's happened in a lot of these incidents. There's an assumption that a young black man is doing something wrong and these police officers are on edge. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's just the presumption, you know, uh, <clears throat> of guilt. And um, I, you know, something, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just systemic. You know, it's been that way since I was a kid. I tell you, some of my black, I, you know, one of the, uh, of my black friends that actually lived near me in the neighborhood where I grew up, you know, so that's the thing. I lived in a black neighborhood, but I went to school in the suburbs was mostly in the suburbs with mostly white kids. So, you know, I experienced, you know, I guess both both cultures, if you want to if you want to call it that. And, uh, one of my uh, earliest recollections of kind of a distasteful encounter with the police was a story one of my childhood friends told me that when he was maybe six or seven years old, uh, he lived, I lived on the south side of Minneapolis. He lived on the north side of Minneapolis. Those are both, those are both predominantly black areas. Uh, the south side of Minneapolis is where George, George Floyd was killed. Anyway, uh, my friend from the north side told me that the first time he was ever called the N-word, just to be polite, was when he was playing in the intersection in front of his house, which a lot of kids did at the time because, you know, back then, you know, there wasn't as much traffic as there is now. You could play in the street and uh, be pretty safe. Uh, a patrol car, uh, he said, uh, pulled up to him and the white officer leaned out and said, N-word, get out of the street. When he was a kid, you know, five, six, seven years old. And for, for some reason, it just, you know, it just slapped me in the face. Like, you know, I mean, he told me the story when we were teenagers. And uh, and it just it just, it's just stuck with me, you know, uh, you know, you know, stuck with me for the rest of my life that, you know, that there are just some people, not just police officers, but there are just some people who just do not view other people from different races and different backgrounds as human beings, basically. And that's what leads to a lot of these confrontations and a lot of these tragic deaths. And, you know, that's exactly what's happened in Minnesota over the past uh, 
do you guys think, I mean, obviously um, starting as far back as Rodney King and even before that, um, there have been these situations with police. Do you all think there's something specific about Minneapolis that's different than other cities or is this just the way it is in cities, do you think? Well, uh, Minneapolis has changed a lot. And um, uh, I think Randy pointed out that, you know, when we were growing up, the, the uh, non-white population was quite small. It's about 40% of the city now. Uh, you have a huge uh, uh, Somali population that's come in. Um, uh, there's a sizable Hispanic population. Uh, there's an Indian population, uh, American Indian population. And uh, I, I don't think it's an accident that these incidents are happening. You have an all, you know, and the, my, my wife was pointing out earlier today, the Brooklyn Center Police Department, not a single officer lives in Brooklyn Center. And, and that's a mostly black suburb. Um, so uh, you have these encounters between white officers and young black men. And, and I think there's, you know, it's happening everywhere. I don't mean to say Minneapolis is, is all that different, but I do think that there is a culture shift in Minneapolis. Um, and I, I think there's uh, there's a dynamic there between whites and blacks that is, there's a lot of tension. And that was exasper exacerbated by the, the Floyd killing. But, um, you know, prior to that, there was Philandro Castile. And, uh, and then you had the shooting, you know, last week in Brooklyn Center. So, um, and, and in between, by the way, there was a black officer who shot a white woman, um, Justine Diamond, and he was convicted. He's the only officer who's been convicted in Minneapolis, I believe, uh, involving uh, shooting. Um, and it happened to be a black officer shooting a white woman. So anyway, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't think it's too much different, but I do think that there's a changing dynamic in Minneapolis that um, has to contribute in some way. You know, this seems like uh, to me a, a microcosm of what our country has been going through uh, very recently. Um, it seems like things pick, have picked up in the past um, several years from, you know, the racial incidents that are being now recorded or the inc incidents of um, police brutality and, and other things, you know, racial hate uh, documentation. My being the one person in this conversation from the South, I did grow up with a lot of this. I grew up hearing about the horrors. I grew up knowing essentially knowing my place. And I write about this a little bit in the, in, in the book. Um, but when I came to Cincinnati from the South, I always thought I was coming to a place that was uh, more enlightened. And actually I felt better about Cincinnati than I felt from where I came from. But what I did find is there are people of goodwill and people of bad will everywhere. 
Guys, as, as you digest all the things that are going on now and, you know, in the Floyd case, the, 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 the defense has rested and now we have this disruption um, in Brooklyn Center. Where do you feel like we're going? Well, you know, we're going nowhere if they're, you know, if, if the police aren't held accountable for their actions and that remains to be seen. Uh, you know, I can understand uh, what happened to the young man, I can't recall his name, who was recently- Yeah, Gunned down in uh, uh, Brooklyn Center uh, under, in a stressful situation. You know, maybe she did. In a stressful situation, in an encounter with a young black man who may have had some apprehension about to begin with, which may have been the reason that, uh, you know, they pulled him or she pulled him over for having an air freshener, you know, hanging from his rearview mirror. Um, anyway, in that situation, I could see how, you know, that shooting could happen. By the same token, uh, you know, so the black officer, the, the Somali officer that uh, John referenced, uh, who's serving time in jail now for third degree murder, which carries a heavier uh, penalty and longer sentences than second degree murder, uh, was charged, convicted, you know, you know, like that. You know, there was really no debate about whether he should have to serve time for. And, and he was he was probably in a. Uh, you know, more compromising position than the female officer who shot the young man in Brooklyn Center. He was in a dark alley, I think, and he had been called to the scene over a violent, you know, a, I think a reported assault. And, uh, you know, so conceivably, you know, he didn't know who he was shooting at when he shot the woman. Uh, yet and still, you know, he was convicted of negligence or whatever, uh, you know, third degree murder uh, stands for. And he's serving time. Now, if this woman who clearly, you know, you know, killed this man, you know, even if it was by accident, you know, without cause, you know, is not convicted of anything. It doesn't serve any jail time. Uh, and the same goes true for uh, Chauvin, you know. Uh, it's like, you know, John and I were discussing that uh, case earlier today and, you know, he pointed out, with all the overwhelming evidence against him and the testimony, if he's if he's not convicted, then there no cop could ever be convicted of uh, you know manslaughter, you know killing a suspect. Uh, there's just uh, you know there's there's nothing else the the prosecution there there's no evidence the prosecution could submit. But if neither one of them serve any time, or if uh, even only one of them serves time, you you know you the there'll still be a tear in the fabric of society in America and in Minneapolis, and you won't see any coming together until that tear is mended. And the only way that tear will be mended is when people who have been victimized, you know, uh, see justice in the form of, uh, you know, uh, retribution against, uh, you know, the people that are victimized. Do you, do you guys think there is, and I was on the Cincinnati Human Relations Commission for a lot of years, and we this was in the 90s prior to Timothy Thomas, and we spent a lot of time talking about police community relations. 
is there an issue with a mindset of of police officers? Because frankly, it seems to me that there is. Well, definitely. I think there's over-policing to me is the bottom line. It's the crux of the whole issue. I mean, there's no reason, you know, to pull a gun or a taser on a young man that you pulled over for a minor traffic violation. Would that happen in a suburb? You know, would that, would that have happened in uh, one of the suburbs here, Westchester, would they pull over a young white teenage kid and, you know, pull a taser or a handgun on him for a minor traffic violation? If you ask me, the answer is no, in most cases, you know, so uh, you know, yeah, it's not a, um, I mean, so, so, you know, you can't, there, there are going to be people with bad intentions in any profession and you can't weed them all out, but you can establish procedures that don't allow them to take advantage of the situation. And, you know, and, and, you know, there just needs to be some, uh, definitely there needs to be some police reform. You should not be, it should be against policy to pull any kind of a weapon on someone unless you feel like your life is in danger. Uh, you know, a fleeing suspect who's fleeing on a misdemeanor charge, uh, there's no reason in the world. You have his license plate, you can always find him, uh, arrest him, uh, find him, whatever. There's no reason in my mind, there's no reason to ever pull a gun. And it's the same thing with Timothy Thomas. He was unarmed and running away. You know, the Cincinnati man who died 20 years ago. Right, who was shot in the back by police officers running away. And, you know, I covered uh, some of the riots back then. And, uh, you know, people just, you know, couldn't understand why. I mean, so my editor at the time, I won't, you know, say his name, but my editor, the first, when, when the news broke, I remember I was in the newsroom when the news broke. And the first question he asked me was, we have to figure out why these young black kids are running from the police. And I was like, really? That's the, that's, that's your, that's your initial reaction to shooting. Why are these, you know, old white men shooting black kids in the back, you know, for running away, you know, on misdemeanor charges, you know, that's uh, you know, that was my question to him, you know? Right. And that's 20 years ago. And the same thing is happening over and over again, you know? So, you know, where are we going? Well, you know, it doesn't appear that uh, we've made a whole lot of progress. Now, I do think that the Floyd case is a possible turning point. Um, uh, for one thing, I, I don't I don't recall any other trial where police officers testified against police officers. So the whole blue line has broken down a little bit in that case. And the reason is obviously Nine minutes is a long time to stick your knee onto somebody's neck, particularly when he didn't even have a pulse for a couple of those minutes. So um, it's a huge case from that standpoint, but um, I think you, we'd all be naive if we think that, okay, if he gets convicted, everything's going to be fine. You know, there's, a, there's just a lot of work that's gonna have to be done. Thank you, guys. Um, it, it is it's such an important issue. We have so much to talk about, and we can talk about this for for another another time as well. I, I you know, we're we're down to um, to to the end of our our podcast this week. But but I will tell you guys, would would you be open to coming back when this case ends, whether it's uh, 
you know, after the trial ends or, or, or as the adjudication process uh, with Mr. Wright continues as well to, uh, to talk about this further. Sure. Sure. That'd be great. And I would love to be honest. I know that between the four of us, we're not going to come up with a solution, but if we can talk about things that, might help might help our society through this. I know that we don't know, but you know, starting back with Timothy Thomas, I was complete, and I lived in the city. I was completely focused on what we could do to improve the situation. Yes, absolutely. Definitely um, a conversation worth having. It is. Um, can I, I bow out? I have an emergency call I need to take right now. So absolutely, Randy. Thanks for joining us, and we'll we'll be talking to you soon. We appreciate your being with us. Okay, hey, thanks again. I enjoy the conversation, and um, hey, good seeing you, John. You know, all right. Uh, we'll see. Now. All right, and nice. And and John, you know, again, we we would like to thank you for being with us today. We will continue this conversation. Uh, be well uh, and be careful out there. There's still a lot going on, and and. Uh, we have to be mindful of everything. So thank you so much. All right. I, will, I will give us our hopeful moment now. And we're in a time that talking about hopeful moments um, seems a little bizarre, but but we have one. We do have one, Jennifer. We have we, one. We have to be hopeful in this environment. You know, the opposite of hope is, is what? Um, you know, fear, I suppose. Well, you have to, you know, that it get, hope gets me out of bed in the morning, and I think it does for a lot of people. Yeah. So the hopeful moment today, I live in the great state of New Mexico now. I actually have a driver's license here. So I am a New Mexican. And we were thrilled this morning to see on the front page of the New York Times an article by Simon Romero um, about COVID and New Mexico. And I'm going to just read it a little. Despite having one of the highest poverty rates in the country, New Mexico is surging past states with far more resources in the race to achieve herd immunity against the coronavirus. After New Mexico put into motion one of the most efficient vaccine rollouts in the United States, more than 50% of its adult population has received at least one dose of the vaccine, according to the CDC. New Hampshire is the only state with a higher vaccination rate. Nearly 38% of New Mexican adults are fully vaccinated. We have a wonderful governor. Uh, she was considered to be in the Biden cabinet, but she wanted to stay in New Mexico, her home state, and work on things here. And I am proud that this small, scrappy state with a very diverse population is really doing well on this health spectrum. Oh, that is so, so important. Congratulations. You guys actually deserve a hand if I could give you one over the air here, um, because I will tell you, uh, it's so important. I, I've gotten, I've been able to get my second shot. Uh, and, you know, I, I am so hopeful that we can finally sort of get past this COVID and get back to doing the things that, that we that we like to do. Um uh, freely in the United States of America and, and around the world, frankly. So so thank you for that. And I'm going to give a PSA here. Yes. Well, we try to not be political on our show. 
I'm a huge proponent of vaccines and I really would like everyone to consider getting them. While there's been some news on the J&J &J one lately, um, it's also pointed out that if you're on the birth control pill, you're more likely to have a blood clot than with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, it's important for our society that we get to herd immunity like we, we've done with so many other illnesses and let modern medicine work for us. Absolutely. Jennifer, thank you again, John, thank you for being with us today. We are going to end. We invite you uh, who are returning to, to, to download this podcast. Uh, thank you for listening as well. And um, we will see you in uh, next week. Keep hope alive. Bye.